Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacktasem. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, when you hear the horn blow, you better be ready to go. I'm, I'm really good. I'm really That's good. good. Excellent. Yeah, over here we had uh, another historic weather event. So we had one back in October with ice that knocked our power out for nine days. Luckily, this time we did not lose power, but um, we're, I'm learning the harsh lesson of nature's fury over the past several months. It's making me feel very small and very inadequate. So I'm currently attempting not to go full, you know, doomsday prepper over here. But um, it makes you think maybe a, a few cans of beans in the pantry isn't a bad idea. Beans and noodles, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and some lentils. Uh, well, what you're really talking about is kind of, you know, an island mentality of, of being a little bit, you know, prepared and, and looking after oneself that way, which... Uh, that's kind of an appropriate sort of mindset for uh, tonight. You know, this episode is because mm -hmm. uh, island mentalities are very interesting. You know, uh, it's easy when you're living on a big continent to, to forget that continents are, are islands. You know, that's a good point. Yeah, North America, as a matter of fact, was known as Turtle Island. That's uh, right by the natives. So because it kind of does look like a turtle, that was um, one of the things when I was teaching children about uh, farming. We would go over several native stories, the three sisters and so on. We would tell them about Sky Mother and Turtle Island. And we would ask them, how did they know that North America looked like a turtle? And it would blow their minds. And frankly, it still blows my mind. Well, remember we were talking about, you know, art that can only really be appreciated uh, from the air. It's a very mysterious global phenomenon. Uh, mm hmm, mm -hmm. There's some piece of, of the, the human puzzle, uh, well, more than a few, I think, but that is one that we're really still missing because it is mysterious. How, how do you know that, you know? Exactly. Well, Chris, on that note, what are we going to talk about today? Okay. Well, I think we are uh, continuing in the direction of a large uh, investigative meditation on the subjects of, of how individual psychology relates to cultural psychology, cultural presence. And part of our hope, I think, there is to, is to redefine culture in the same way that we've tried to articulate what we mean by magic in an anthropological sense, in a psychology sense, uh, and in a day-to-day -day personal or artistic sense. And in our last series, we looked at uh, the concept of the ghostly double, the mysterious stranger, and a sense of hauntedness that we said is particularly characteristic of Western civilization. And there are many ways to sort of look at that. We looked at religious and mythological examples of that. We looked at artistic examples. And we started to explore some ideas of psychology and, and mental health. But this concept of, of duality and some sort of opposition that is particularly uh, a fact of life uh, within Western culture. Um, and it, it seems to get, be getting more intense that we have this, we're, we're living more ghostly virtual lives. Uh, I've got uh, schizophrenic homeless people around me who talk about, you know, electromagnetic demons in the air, you know. So on the one hand, we have this sense of, of being haunted and being possessed. And yet 
I know a lot of people who would use the term dispirited. We're dispirited. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very, very strange paradox. So just by way of giving people a background about the overall sort of frame of where we are, mm -hmm. we've got this conflict of being on the one hand haunted and then dispirited. Well, so what do we do about it, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, when the when the house is empty, the squatters show up. Right. As you found, as you found, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, I think that's a very, that's a great way, you know, to, to practically ground the, these grand sort of abstract, mythical, uh, dream world things into very practical reality. And on that note of practicality, I, I think our suggestion with this next series, however it goes, is the simple premise, uh, which I think everyone can understand, uh, is looking through the windows of other cultures around the world and throughout time as a way of better understanding our own. I think it's very hard to understand the cultural cargo, the cultural contraband that we carry as individuals when we're embedded within American technological social media society. Very hard to get a handle on that. So the only way to get an aerial view to tie into, you know, to see the turtle, to see the shapes of land, to see the shapes of mind is, is through the lens of other cultures. And uh, with this episode, we're going to look at uh, a part of the world that, that I think is one of the most interesting that I've certainly ever come across, uh, the geocultural region of Melanesia, which for people who don't know, it is the Western Pacific islands where the cultures and they're incredibly diverse. We're going to have to do a little bit of background on that. Uh, this is the black part of the Pacific distinct from Polynesians and Micronesians. And if people would like to look at a globe or map, we're looking at a series of archipelagos that run from about 130 degrees east to 170 degrees east, uh, just a little south of the equator. So between Indonesia, just north of Australia, in heading uh, further east. And the the countries or land masses that we're talking about are the island of New Guinea, which is the world's second largest island after Greenland, uh, the Solomon Island chain, uh, the region of New Caledonia, Vanuatu, and farthest east, Fiji. Okay, so it's a very, very diverse island-based set of cultures. Some of the most diverse linguistic and cultural uh, sets in human history. It's absolutely phenomenal. Um, to give an example, New Guinea is home to more languages, distinct human languages, than any other region in the world. Hmm. Uh, there were, at one point, we, we sort of estimate... Uh, somewhere on the, on the order of 1,500 distinct languages. Wow. They've, they've, uh, they're, they're, of course, under threat and, and with habitat destruction um, and a whole series of, of colonial and post-colonial issues, 
uh, they are under threat and have, have declined between 650 and, and 800, depending on uh, on how you look at it. Um, there is an enormous topographical uh, difference across these. I have a blind friend who describes uh, a relief map of New Guinea Island as a party for her nerves and nervous system mm. or like putting her hand on a holy book. And I think that contrast between this just explosion of sensory information coming from, you know, a really beautifully done relief map uh, and the, the topographical complexity is why, or one of the causal uh, factors, uh, perhaps, of why there is such cultural and linguistic differences um, on New Guinea Island, which is arbitrarily, um, well, colonially, uh, by precedent, divided in half. The western half is now consists of two states that are uh, governed by Indonesia with an enormous uh, humane interest problem there. Uh, there are sort of serious concerns of genocide, um, real problems. The eastern half is the independent nation state of Papua New Guinea. And PNG, like Vanuatu and the Solomons, all achieved independence about the same time, colonial independence in the, in the mid-1970s, which is not that long ago. So there's an enormous amount of, of social turmoil. And, and growing pains that, that are still happening, which we may get around to talking about. But the interesting thing about, well, one of thousands of interesting things about Papua New Guinea is that um, the Highlands region was really only uh, discovered from the, in that crude European sense uh, in the 1930s. It, no one knew about it, um, except the people living there, of course. And we have a kind of you know, terrible lost tribe uh, condescending frame for discovering these people. But uh, a group of, of Australian-Irish uh, prospectors, gold prospectors, not surprisingly, um, managed to make it up into the Highlands in 1931. And they didn't find uh, some lost tribe. Uh, they found 800,000 people at least and some of the most diverse cultural and linguistic uh, groups of people that we know of. Um, I'm, I think people would, would know of the, the phenomenal body art that these people uh, practice. It's the, just beautiful, beautiful um, face painting, costumes. This is the home of the wig men and the mud men. I think people would, would know the Asara mud men. Uh, it's just absolutely mind-bending how beautiful and terrifying and overwhelming the landscape is. And then to see that uh, absolutely mirrored in the cultural and language complexity of the people who live there. Absolutely stunning. Um, so that's where we're going. It's quite, uh, it's the most... Uh, adventurous place I've ever been to. Um, and it, it's it haunted and dreamlike and amazing, but not haunted in the same way that we were using that term in terms of, of Western civilization. And 
we're going to talk about the idea of cargo cults, which I think a lot of people would have heard about. And unfortunately, what we've heard in the West is a lot of just terrible nonsense, and it, it needs to be corrected. So one of our tasks with this episode is to, to change some minds about a, a phrase that got a lot of attention in the media, sometimes at a very, very crude level, but even at the anthropology level, uh, I, I think is, is still misunderstood. Um, but one of the things that I noticed when I, and I, I went to that part of the world specifically because I was interested in the cargo cult idea. Uh, I had studied the ghost dance religion of Native American people, uh, which began uh, just up the road from where I live now in Pyramid Lake. And uh there are some similarities, but there are a lot of differences. But the first thing I noticed uh, was a mindset difference. And again, you know, here we are looking into a window of another culture to get a different view of our own. We tend to think of cargo as Western goods, merchandise, technology, uh, product, you know, products that we can get our hands on and sell you know, mm -hmm. and the idea being that that's what these so-called primitive people want. Um, they want to get more Western stuff, right. which is really a, a, just a brutally simplistic way of thinking about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I would put forward the idea that at the core, the core mindset difference is thinking more in terms of verbs rather than nouns. How does that resonate with you? It's great. No, I really love the idea of thinking about uh, something like cargo as a verb rather than a noun. It reminds me of the like the Lusian concept of becoming, of different becomings, right? Desiring machines are always becoming. Um, I don't have a whole ton of time for Deleuze, but that's the first thing that comes to mind. I think that a good since you're so knowledgeable about this topic, would it be okay if I gave my sort of ignorant idea of what a cargo cult is, which uh, might be less informed than some of our listeners, and then you can kind of correct me and we can go from there? You think that, sure. that would be helpful? Okay. I think that's a good way to handle it. Yeah. So my understanding of a cargo cult is a group of indigenous people unfamiliar with technology who have received uh, packages, uh, usually aerially, from, from airplanes, right? So mm -hmm. you picture people, uh, a tribal people, they see a big metal bird in the sky, the bird drops a box, and the box is full of food, right? We'll just say it's food for, the, for this purpose, right? So they begin to think that they can recreate this magical thing happening by performing various rituals. And those rituals tend to take on a kind of ersatz uh, Western culture look to them, right? So they'll uh, dress like Westerners and they'll <clears throat> sort of, I don't know, make a make a car out of, or a gun out of bamboo or something like that and carry it around uh, in an attempt to mimic culture in the hopes of receiving another package from the metal bird in the sky. That's my That's my basic guy understanding of cargo cults. 
I think that's very fair in terms of, of what the general perception would be. And, and there's certainly, uh, you know, as with every, you know, perception that gets worldwide circulation, there are some elements of, 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 of reasonableness to that. I, I'll say reasonableness rather than truth. But I think that's a very fair uh, estimation of, of what certainly uh, Western media has, has portrayed um, the situation as. So let's, if we wanted to package that up, we could say local native indigenous ritual practice that mimics, imitates in a magical, creative sense, the visible aspects of, of Western technology. That, mm -hmm. that is very much what uh, where where the where the term cargo cult starts with because let's not forget that that's a Western uh, phrase that's not how it's um, cargo is a pigeon word that is certainly used but they uh, like a lot of our cults they don't necessarily think of themselves as having a cult you know that's mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. not exactly what they're doing right um, let me just but before I, I there are three aspects of the thinking that I think do apply fairly uh, generally across these very diverse landscapes and language scapes. And I, I just want to touch on those briefly because I think they're interesting anecdotally before we dig a little bit deeper into the idea of cargo. Um, one group of people that I know very well, I'm a, I'm a citizen of the Solomon Islands uh, in addition to Australian America. One of the things that really impressed me about, well, so many, but they were in absolutely vital allies during World War II. And we, we just simply could not have achieved victory in the Pacific without their involvement. And they were considered by the British, the Australians, and the Americans to be the most effective jungle combat guerrilla fighters that anyone had encountered at that point to the to the degree that it was never appropriate to consider any one of them missing in action mia they had their own category of nya not yet arrived i think well, we may have touched touched about on that i mean one of our, our maybe our first episode but i find that just so beautiful and moving i I, I, you know, it just, I had to go mm -hmm. meet those people. And then I found out one of the deep cultural beliefs, which they do apply to military strategy, but, but it's kind of a deeper, uh, all pervasive idea of life. And it can be summarized in English as no fortress, no siege. They simply do not dig in and, uh, create a defensive situation. Their idea is to scatter, to create the illusion of more people than, than not, to expand. They're always moving out, staying on the move. And it's kind of a personal philosophy that, that you can see throughout the culture. And I think it's very, very, it's one of the, you know, given how diverse this range of people are, we're talking about several million across the whole 
uh, Melanesian geocultural region. That's one of the ideas that I think is remarkable. It's not that they don't have villages or houses or, you know, mm, of course mm-hmm. they do. But it's a general idea of no fortress, no siege, which, I don't know, I think of that personally myself all the time of, of trying to, how can I apply that, you know, as a, as a strategy for life? Yes, because you see people so often online and in real life. We have a phrase in English that says, that's not a great hill to die on. Um, and it seems to me that the idea of a hill, of pushing a Sisyphean boulder up in order until you die, um, is, is very Western. But it's better to look at it in terms of your own mind as if you don't have any fortresses in your own head, there can never be any siege, right? So exactly. you scatter. I love the idea of scattering. It might, in the long run, it might end up making me a somewhat annoying person to talk to. But if, if you never dig your heels in, there can never be any real attack. Right. Well, that and, and that is the kind of thing. I mean, it, it, it certainly is, it has been historically applied to how they treat uh, you know, military actions, but it's much deeper psychologically about an attitude to life, you know, mm. about being, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, you can get a 12 or 14 year old boy who's basically just in gym shorts and he goes on a, you know, a 40 mile walk about through dense jungle and he doesn't have any water. He doesn't have any weapons because he's going to he, find it along the way. He, mm. he's cool, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and I, I love that sense of confidence and that sense of, that lack of fear of the world, you know? I, I think that's the way to think of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, the second thing is something I think that um, that Carl Jung would really get with. And uh, I had a friend who was um, part of a, a, a British consortium and was very proud about delivering this massive earth-moving machine, you know, for, for a mining operation. And, you know, just state-of-the-art equipment and... I think he, you know, he was new to the region and I think he expected all the locals to, um, and the correct term actually for people is, is nationals. Uh, he expected them all to just to sort of fall over in this cargo cult kind of worship thing. Well, that's not what they did. <laughs> <laughs> they, they set upon this giant machine and they took it apart mm. piece by piece by piece but with a precision and a respect, but also just an intensity that is hard for Westerners to imagine. And then, of course, they reassembled. Mm. And, and, and you think, well, why did they do it? Well, they wanted to really understand the gift that had been given. You know, how does this thing work? How much fuel does it need? How much maintenance is involved? But at the same time, when he asked them, why? They said, well, we need to build ourselves into the machine. We need to build our magic and our culture into it. And, you know, Jung was always about that idea about we need to engage with the world. We can't just be the passive uh, recipients of it. We can't just be passengers. It would, we've got to be more in terms of, of stowaways within it or pilots. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that's a beautiful idea of, of dismantling something to understand it in a, in a practical, you know, engineering sense, but yeah. also that deeper idea of 
of magic in a very practical way. And I think that is one of the ways that, that you and I use the term magic. Mm -hmm. The third mindset idea is, is, is lovely because it's, it, if, if you've been to the region, you, you, it's a story that, uh, you know, it's, it's like a, a bar joke, but it's true. It happens all the time. So this is a, a backcountry pub, you know, corrugated iron roof, you know, a shack, right? Yeah. But there's an Aussie and a Kiwi, and they're betting on two green ants on a wall. They're betting on which is going to get to, you know, the top first, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very, very heated. Well, the Solomon Island story is, Solomon Island looks at them and goes, the third green ant is already on the ceiling. <laughs> and of course, they had, you know, they hadn't seen the third green ant. Right. You know, they right. were so intent on their little frame. And that's, that is one of the things that just so fascinates me. And it just cheers me and inspires me about people from this, because this region is, because they, they, their attentiveness, their alertness to life is another form of intelligence that we just don't have uh, a real grasp of, you know? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. with that in mind, let, let's go back to how you were thinking of the cargo cult uh, situation. The Western idea is that cargo cultism uh, really blossomed or exploded in the 1940s and 50s. Um, and there are a couple of really fine books on this subject from, from a very serious anthropology point of view. One is by Peter Worsley called The Trumpet Shall Sound, and perhaps the best-known uh, book, uh, Road Belong Cargo by Peter Lawrence. And both of those try to break that media idea that this all started in the 1940s. And it's not just a response to... Uh, Christian missionary influence, uh, colonial influence, or most importantly, the, the massive influx of Western technology. Um, for people who haven't, uh, you know, Guadalcanal, uh, some of these regions are very, very significant in terms of American military history. And many uh, Americans and, and Aussies go back regularly for pilgrimages. But the bombardment and the barbarism of the war in that part of the world was is just phenomenal. You know, not that it wasn't in Europe, but my word, uh, it was intense. And you know, some some people there had never seen an airplane, you know, before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, you know, there's this onslaught, and all of these things do appear out of the sky or out of you know huge military military transport ships. But the Western perspective that this was all driven, really, by World War II is, I think, much more a factor of we just simply didn't know about these people much before then. Right. And they didn't know about us. Mm -hmm. and, and the Peter Lawrence book does show, with some interesting examples, of how the idea of, of cargo... Well, first of all, it's a world culture idea. I mean, you look at a large sections of the Bible, and uh, I think there's a lot of cargo cultism going on there. Interesting. Um, hmm. But 
island people get visited. You know, these islands had, you know, well before uh, World War II, uh, they had been visited by uh, Europeans. The, the Spanish misplaced the entire Solomon Island archipelago for 200 years. Malaysian traders, Thai, Indonesian traders and pirates had visited for a long time. The Chinese had a huge uh, ongoing input for, you know, 500 years looking for sea cucumber and sandalwood primarily. So island people get visited. There is that sense of cargo and cargo going to back to this idea of a verb rather than product. It's pretty important in terms of trading and, and intermarriage, right? It, mm -hmm. it, Mm -hmm. It can be, uh, I mean, it, it's obviously connected with war, and uh, these are what we mean by the cannibal islands. There's no question about that, headhunters and cannibals. But trading and that process of cargo rather than product is, is really, really, you know, essential. But let's look at three examples that got a lot of world attention that helped to create uh, the worldview of it. That, that I think you, you very fairly and accurately described. The island of New Hanover is a small island uh, near New Ireland. New Ireland and New Britain are two of the biggest islands north of New Guinea Island proper. These are fairly big provinces. New Hanover was fairly small. Is fairly small. They got an enormous amount of attention in, in the 1960s, 1964. Because the media, the Western media, presented them as trying to buy Lyndon Johnson. Right. Okay? Yeah. And everyone thought, ha, 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 look at these poor primitive people. They're trying to use their primitive magic to, to buy, you know, this U.S. president. And some of the, uh, the original, uh, even from really good newspapers, so this isn't just the, you know, the tabloids, were so condescendingly stupid, it, it infuriates me to this day. Mm -hmm. um, because <laughs> think about it for a moment. They were trying to buy Lyndon Johnson. No, they, they were reaching out to the most powerful person they, they had learned of in the world. They were trying to establish a relationship with the United States as opposed to the, the immediate neighbors of Indonesia and Australia. Uh, they were trying to, you know, reach forward on a global scale to be part of the world that they had now realized what was going on. Mm -hmm. So I think about that a lot. And I thought about that a lot uh, years later when I was uh, had settled in Australia and I was involved in getting the Clintons to come to Melbourne to uh, $10,000 a plate dinners. I think I'd rather yeah. hang out with the cannibals and headhunters. Oh, man, I got to tell you, I, I yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. But, you know, think about it. I mean, what what were we trying to do? Rent the Clintons, buy the Clintons, you know? Right, right. I mean, what's a keynote speaker? You know, you pay someone a fee. I mean, that's the idea that, that the, the people of New Hanover were somehow – in some weird superstitious way, trying to use their magic to uh, create a, a relationship with Lyndon Johnson. Well, that's just a, a wrong definition of magic. 
I mean, I, I think mm -hmm. what they were doing was, was very sensible. And it did get people aware of them. I mean, no one had heard of that in, in the West. You mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. A lot of people living not that far away in Australia didn't know anything about it. So I think that's a really good example of how a kind of behavior that's seen from another point of view, you know, it's always easy to see somebody else's magic and superstitions in a negative light, and then you don't see your own, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it also seems to me to have an element of tricksterism to it, too. So they're torn between, what did you, Indonesia and Australia on the other yes. end? Yes, uh-huh. So to me, it would look like by you know, attempting to sort of purchase the favor of Lyndon Johnson, because the goal at the end of the day, right, is for them to have, instead of Indonesia or Australia rule over them, it would be the United States or Lyndon Johnson, right? Would that be the idea? Or at least have our favor, I guess, would be a better way yeah, of putting it? Yeah, to, to get within the American sphere of influence, to be to have that be the alignment. Yeah. Right, um, right. So what is that if not a middle finger to their current occupiers? Is, was there an element of that to it? Oh, absolutely. There. I mean, these are enormously clever people, and and you know, getting an getting access to a gigantic machine of media and power that they had really, you know, just been exposed to. And I think it was an enormously successful. They got world headlines. It. It. You know, they really. In every way, it was a beautiful trickster gesture and, and immensely successful. So, I mean, the idea that, that, you know, a sort of savage stupidity, well, the people who were savage and stupid were, you know, the media people presenting it in that light, because I think it was phenomenal. And well, all I got to say is the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, here's another example to think. And this underlying, you know, the success of that, I think, is a different approach to how magic, religion, culture and politics all mingles. You know, they don't have these nice compartments. They see things as, you know, really in a terms of a continuum, you yeah. know, called yeah. life. You right. know, there was uh, a cargo prophet who, and I, I just love this story. I, I he, uh, you know, he was uh, sort of 50 ish. Um, wasn't entirely sure what year he was born, but a good looking man, very capable, a shaman, chief, economic leader, you know, the hub of a community. So the Western people have this idea of, well, we're going to, we're going to take him to Brisbane in Australia and take him to factories and hospitals and show him that, you know, where this stuff comes from, that it's not made by magic. And so, you know, they take him on this tour and he's very polite the whole time. He does show, you know, some, some real interest and surprise. And, uh, but they keep saying, you know, see, see, this isn't magic. And he had a pretty good command of English and at one great function, he said, I don't think you understand what we mean by magic. <laughs> and, and they have a whole range of words for magic. And uh -huh. it was just like such a beautiful, you know, moment. And here are all these crestfallen municipal leaders and civic dignitaries and state officials and politicians. Right. And, right. 
And he just shows them up entirely, but it gets even better. So it's time for the tour to end. They're going to return him back to his rural, remote village community. And they say, look, we want you to have some gifts. You know, please choose one of our great magic that, that you know, will impress your people. So here are the three things he chooses, okay? Yep. And, and think of this in the light of what a Western political leader or celebrity, you know, how they would think. The first thing he chose was an, a beautiful titanium steel, but old-fashioned ripsaw, you know, mm -hmm. like a two-man lumberjack sort of thing, because mm -hmm. he wanted to, to use that with his son. Mm. And everyone goes, well, why don't you want a chainsaw? You know, I'm like, well, the, the attitude is, well, chainsaws need, you know, fuel, they're, they need spark plug, you know, on and on and on, whereas we can run this by hand. Mm -hmm. And he also wanted to show that even middle-aged, he was a vigorous, virile, you know, physical man. He was yeah. a leader, not because he had other people do stuff for him, but because he was really skilled and good at doing things himself. Love it. The second thing. And this is genius. This is just a different kind of genius than, than we can deal. He asked one of these sort of, well, you can imagine the kind of, of female PR person who might have been shepherding them around on this junket, right? Mm -hmm. But he asked her advice on what is the most high quality women's face and beauty product, a face cream kind of thing. You know, mm -hmm. and he gets jars and jars of it. And everyone goes, what are you, what are you doing that for? <laughs> and then he collects a couple hundred of those very simple balsa wood hand friction propeller toys that kids would enjoy. Mm -hmm. OK, so just think about this constellation now of the three great gifts that he will take home you know, from the, the coffers of, of Western magic and cargo. Well, he has this beautiful shining ripsaw to use with his son, who's going to be, you know, follow him up the line. He's got something to offer all of the women that they've, you know, never experienced. And he's got these very simple but cool toys for mm -hmm. all the children. And I just think that's a that from a political point of view, I think that's just pure uh, astuteness. Men, <laughs> you know? women, and children all covered. He, he, all he hit all covered. three. Now I have all. a quick question. So I'm 34. Chris, uh, is it too late for me to become a cargo prophet? I think that's one of the ways I think of you as. <laughs> I think that you're you're a cargo prophet of Oklahoma. I'll take uh, it. Thank you. And and you're revising our ideas of of cargo magic uh, in a very very positive you know way. I I think that that listen you've you've got it going on. I think that we can definitely put forward that idea. The cargo prophet of Oklahoma. <laughs> I get that on my tombstone. That's going to be great. No, that's an awesome story, though, because it also seems to me that it's covering. So the saw is functional. The makeup is uh, appearance based, right? It's cosmetic 
aesthetic, right? So there's function, aesthetic, and then play, right? Yes. Um, yes. So that's a, that's another three ways of looking at that, and they all make sense within the context of the place that he's taking them back to, and I think that it's this it's another great. I'm not sure in this case trickster would be the right word, but it's a great subversion of what, you know, the Western people probably, you know, thought that they were going, that he was going to pick or that he was, you know, that they were doing him some kind of grand favor, right? Because when you offer people a gift, it almost seems in the West that it, if it's functional, it's a little bit of a letdown, you know, we want a, a Rolex, that has, you know, four different, uh, that can, you know, tell you what day it is and also, you know, the temperature in the Atlantic ocean or something like that, which is functional in name only, but has no real purpose. Um, so the kind of the, the functional and then the very, uh, functionally aesthetic and then the, the kind of play aspect, it feels to me to be a kind of, um, I don't know, just sort of a finger in the eye of, of everything that the West thought that it was at that time. And, and still is, you know, I mean, yeah. what, what, what his hosts believed mistakenly that he was going to choose, you know, electronic goods, you know, uh, radios, televisions, you know, uh, it's another Black Friday sale, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, come to Best Buy and get this and that, you know, and it's the thing that is hated or, or is the need for, you know, batteries not included, you're hooked, you know, they were on to this idea of, you know, inbuilt obsolescence, uh, endless need for new parts, new, you know, there's an update waiting to be installed, you know, it's like, no, we want self-contained thing. And when you think about it, I mean, the West used to be like that, you know, a pickup truck used to last 10, you know, 12, 15 years. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we weren't always upgrading, you know, I got three things to, to upgrade today, you know, yeah, right. And, and I'm going to get three or four more tomorrow. You know, it just goes on and on and on. And without all of the, you know, the, the experience with Western capitalism, which is another kind of cargo cultism, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. They they saw through the whole scam, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's really you know a, a cultural expression of collective intelligence that we are still kind of applauding ourselves for if we are on top of that at all, which is I think very questionable. What do you when you say that Western culture is and capitalism is its own cargo cult? I can't help but think of some of the things that people in Western society will say, um, particularly if they're trying to, it's a very fraught term, but we'll just go with it. They're trying to virtue signal to a specific group. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, if, if I were to, let's say, be a Republican and I'm on, the, I'm on the right of things, right? And I say that we need to respect our troops and we have to be a patriot, right? And we uh, salute the flag. Like, what is that if not performing a ritual for cargo, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> we're, we we think that there's something funny or different about you know uh, a black island person carrying a bamboo gun when you know when we worship at the at the altar of a, of a piece of fabric in hopes that we won't be fired or thrown in jail. So. 
there's more similarities than we might realize at first. Well, I think that's where the condescension begins, is it's a denial of just the fact that there is similarities. I mean, they're really very, very similar. And then we fear that, that we're not doing cargo cultism well. And I think that's, that is really more the truth. But, but here's a good way to uh, moving from New Guinea a little bit east to uh, the nation state of Vanuatu, which was formerly the New Hebrides. The southernmost island is Tana, which has a fantastic volcano on it called Yasser. Uh, the village at the, the base of this uh, volcano is called Sulphur Bay which is the world heart of the John Frum cult, which is probably the most famous. Uh, it, it's been you know, filmed on, on the BBC. It's been in the National Geographic many times. When you talk about people marching with bamboo rifles uh, and the men have USA painted on their backs, there are bamboo airplanes. Um, it's the heart of all of that symbolism and they do it beautifully. It's really, uh, it's amazing artwork really. Mm -hmm. And it's easy for the Western media to go, Oh, look at these, you know, these natives, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well, I spoke to one of the guys who's just, uh, he wasn't, uh, I don't know. He, I guess he was about 10, 15 years older than I was. And so, uh, he said something so sharp that I just thought, you know, when we were looking at this beautiful vine and bamboo radio tower, you know, mm -hmm. and a landing strip, you know, for the, the, the ghost planes of, of Western cargo. <coughs> and he said, you know, in your churches, your Christian churches, there are crosses, aren't there? And I said, yes, there are. Yes, and you've seen them, you know, yeah, the missionaries. He said, do you think that is the real cross that Christ was crucified on? Mm -hmm. You know, they're symbols. They're magical right. symbols that people connect with. And the marching, the idea of marching, you know, supposedly like the soldiers that uh, they remember from, you know, seeing in World War II. Well, marching is a way of bringing people together. Yeah, you know, it's, right. it's a collective physical activity that gets people on the same page. And their focus on uh, their symbol is a red cross. Um, and the Western people made a big deal. But, well, that's, you know, you've got the, the syncretic uh, Christianity symbol and you've got uh, the red of the red, white and blue. And you've got all. Well, I'm here to tell you, I've got brought back to life in a red cross tent. You know, the Red Cross, you know, where did that come from? You know, the Red Crosses are every, that isn't even really that magical or, or you know, uh, creative an idea. They're looking at a great symbol that made real sense. If you, you know, those are the, that was one of the key symbols that they really liked. Mm -hmm. You know, the Red Cross people were good. Yeah. Um, and then everyone goes, well, why do they paint USA on, you know? Well, I think that's a lot cooler than being 12,000 miles from Los Angeles out in the middle of gorgeous jungle that is under threat from mining and timber, in, you know, interests. Mm -hmm. And to see some kid who 
is quite capable of surviving on his own, really entirely. And he's got a cap that says straight out of Compton, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's... That's American colonialism and imperialism and capitalism at its worst, it seems to me, and it's still happening. Mm -hmm. So I think people who talk about colonialism is sort of, you know, something in the past. We're still doing it. Our our whole onslaught of American entertainment products and media and America being the greatest and only, you know, civilization Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the world today. Well, if you get that message hammered into you, you're going to use historical cultural magic to try to cope with that, to try to navigate Mm -hmm. that world. And I think that instead of seeing these things in terms of primitive superstition, which I absolutely resist, I I think it's cultural genius. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'll start off by saying to your earlier point that somewhere in the deepest heart of Africa right now, in a small village, they're receiving, uh, you know, boxes full of jerseys that say Kansas City Chiefs 2020 Super Bowl champions, right? Um because that's what we do with the jerseys of the teams that don't win, right? We get we do that straight out of Compton thing. But with to the point that you're making right now, I couldn't agree more because, you know, you mentioned these, you know, bamboo um towers and and runways, right? <clears throat> and what building those things suggests to me is that there is a function outside uh or that the form itself rather has a function outside of its utilitarian purpose of allowing a plane to land right you look at an airport and the way that it's designed what is it doing if you stop thinking of it in terms of shuttling people from flight to flight right As as this kind of series of tubes what is it sort of outside of that. And that's something that these people who are more magically inclined might understand on a level that uh, that most people don't. Well, that's right. And I you know, one way to see the the uh, developed nations anxiety about this cultural magic and it was very very obvious to me and I I got it actually into into trouble with with some of the uh, academic anthropology people, because I saw what was going on very much in terms of grassroots politics. I saw indigenous politics trying to establish a new relationship with the developed nations world. Yes, there was uh, a religious aspect. Yes, there was uh, a beautiful, creative, imaginative uh, dream time sort of thing. But there was also concern about fishing rights, uh, right. developing right. solar power, getting paid for uh, satellite trajectories, you know. And sure enough, it. I mean, you look at the parliament of Vanuatu today and there is a very, uh, it's a minority party, but there is a very strong John Frum cult element. Mm-hmm. And I think that really is what, gets people actually it's what got uh you know white america concerned about the ghost dance religion mm-hmm. and it was the these paths of belief which do mix uh magic religion economics and politics they get phrased in terms of of millenarian 
uh, religious uh, crisis, apocalypse, you know, mm-hmm. end times sort of stuff. And people going crazy and, and throwing away <laughs> their goods or waiting for ghosts of ancestors or, you know, white saviors or some god from their dream time world. It's a mix of things. There's never a clear path across all of them. But always what gets seen is a sort of hysteria, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, frankly, you look at our culture today and you think, I'm sorry, I think we, we've cornered the market uh, on hysteria. I think that's the cargo that we're projecting onto the world. Marching in order and beautiful things made of natural material and a, a political movement growing out of village communities and trying to negotiate a, a world that is still, you know, relatively new. I, I think it's an amazing achievement, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and a whole different way to, uh, you know, to think of things. But the sense of hysteria and crisis um, pervades the Western thinking when we're not sort of having a giggle about people trying to buy a president or something. Um, there is a concern about uh, apocalyptic behavior or, or violence uh, against, you know, the colonial or post-colonial um, authorities. Mm-hmm. And I think one one interesting um, creative work on that front by a writer who I, I have a great deal of time for, I think that you, you have something uh, to say about is Randolph Stowe, who mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. he's dead now. He, he was a, a British Australian. Um, he was gay. He uh, was an adventurous anthropologist. Uh, he did work as um, a field uh, guide, field uh, part of a, <clears throat> the well, the police force and and anthropology, both in Indigenous Australia and in the Trobrian Islands of of Papua New Guinea. And uh, his his best known book is is called Visitants which has been re-released, and I think it's just one of the most hauntingly beautiful uh, Western glimpses into this very, very intense world. Um, So can you tell our listeners something about that? Yeah, I definitely can. So Visitants, which you recommended to me, first of all, is definitely worth your time. It's got a Faulknerian vibe to it. I couldn't help but think of Faulkner through pretty much the whole thing, the different voices and the way that the prose worked. It's um, somewhat surprising to me that Stowe isn't recognized right now as having written some of the greats. He, I believe, only produced four novels in his lifetime. That's Um, correct. And uh, I'm going to have to move on to the other three after this one because if you're a lit nerd like me, there's a lot in here that's definitely worth looking at. The novel is really great at talking around subjects and not obfuscating for the sake of obfuscating, but doing that thing that I love so much that creates um, a sense of being an alien within the world, right? There's a language that is used to talk around things and about things that... I think Stowe quite rightly realizes that he's not going to be able to explain to you an exposition. So the book opens with a sequence that is, for all intents and purposes, something that really happened. We got to be careful with the word true, right? But it details uh, an incident with a missionary 
and 37 people who are described as being of another color. Very nice way of putting it, right? Um, in which they are visited by a UFO, by a spacecraft. Yes. And the missionary and all of the indigenous folks who saw it all attest to it uh, sort of floating there for an entire night. And they report sightings of beings within the craft who would wave back to them when when hailed and who seem to be moving things around on the ship and somewhat observing the people. Um, they were sort of trying to coax the, the ship down, but it never never did. And then it left off into the into the sky, right? So the book uses this uh, these bookends of talking about this alien encounter at the beginning and the end of the book um, to to frame this novel about uh, a man named Cotter who is or Cador, not exactly sure how to pronounce that, but he's a white person. He's essentially Stowe, right? He's uh, taking the position of, of what Stowe did while he was in that in that particular area. And I won't get too deep into the plot. There are a lot of machinations going on between the different tribes, and the the tribal chieftain's son is is trying to get his spot. It's all very uh, Machiavellian or Macbethian or what have you, right? Um, but about halfway through the novel. Um, Cawdor, the this guy, uh, kills himself, right? He contracts malaria and then kills himself, which is also something uh, that happened to Stowe. Obviously not the suicide, but the malaria, right? Yes. Um, and uh, within the, the context of the novel, several questions are raised with this idea of visitants. And the the framing of the, the alien invader is very on the nose. It wouldn't you know, take a discerning listener very long to sort of understand what Stowe is getting at with that. But the question of, of, of visiting and visitancy and transience uh, as a soul, as a person, uh, becomes more and more evident as you read the book. So it's definitely the best one that I've read this year. Um, and I'm, I'm going to read it again. It might end up sort of becoming a, a, a top book for me. It was a real, a real gem that I just had no idea existed. So thanks for that. Oh, I'm glad you, I'm really glad you, you connected with it. It, uh, it cost him a, a great deal. He, he did not commit suicide, but he did return to England, uh, having had a nervous breakdown and, and really never lived again in Australia. Um, his career as a writer began very, very early. He had earlier, in, when he was only about 24, 25, had been a field officer in um, the Northern Territory in Australia. And that, that first book was To the Islands, which I think is, is still one of the finest books uh, by a young writer, the first novel. You know, when you think about American first novel, it's like, oh, a coming of age. You know, it's just, please, no. Yeah, it's all, it's wanna... almost always coming of age, isn't it? <laughs> it's like and there's and there's just nothing if i can go on a brief rant because i am an editor and i i see a lot of coming of age books and by the way if you've written one please don't be shy hit me up but you read all these coming of age books and unfortunately you tend to find out that that there's just not a ton to say you know what i mean youth yes. youth and naivety is are, are great characteristics to have to tackle really big, difficult subjects, right? Because you know just about as about as much as everybody else, 
you just know that you don't know, right? So it allows you this this space to to really get wild and, and crazy with it. Once you get sort of older and more set in your ways, that's when people want to do their ambitious projects. But at that point, they become too explainy. I don't I don't like that. And this book is not very explainy at all. He wrote it in 1959, which is when it's based. Uh, wrote most of it um, in the at that point and in the following ten years. And then sat on it for another 10 years until it was published in 1979. So it's a book of great power for a lot of reasons. But I, I do think that his perspective as somebody who is curious rather than confident is, is one of the major aspects of that. Well said. I, I think he was one of the most respectful uh, writers coming from any kind of European tradition, either, you know, in terms of literature or uh, genetically that way. He really was a visitant himself, you know. And I, I think that idea of, you know, we're, we have all, you know, the alien uh, extraterrestrial thing. And it's, it seems to be always, I don't know. I mean, I love those themes too. But there is a, a much earlier island idea of, of the visitants, you know? Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of my, um, when I was living on Tana, I really got a feeling for this of uh, being out on the water in not quite an outrigger, but a, a very much a dugout sort of canoe that, you know, we, we'd been out fishing and it was a full moon night, mm. you know? And, tired coming you know we were still out you know trying to get back to sulfur bay and the plume of yasser the volcano was it was absolutely dead still and this plume this pillar of smoke was rising up you know remember the biblical on a pillar like a hand you know out at sea mm -hmm. and it was so easy to imagine how strange it would have been to be out on that water the night that James Cook's ship shut up. Oh, you yeah. Because oh, yeah. he arrived at night and, and he reported seeing the plume of smoke, just, just as I saw it at, mm -hmm. in the moonlight. And talk about visitants, talk about aliens, you know. Uh, the whole movement of the world is strangers and pilgrims, you know. Mm -hmm. That's what we all are. Um and I think that that as you advance your cargo profit role, you you can you know build on this. Of, of we're all strangers and pilgrims, we're all visitants, mm -hmm. and 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 gather uh, the strangers together in in a, a a tribe for a new beginning. Yeah, you know, hundred percent. Yeah, there's there's one other thing not related to visitants, but uh, to the region of Papua New Guinea that I wanted to mention because uh, time is always very interesting to me and how people conceive of time. So when you told me we were doing uh, this particular episode, I went and did some research because I thought to myself, there's no way people from Papua New Guinea see time as as linear as we do. You know, Knowing what I know from Tyson Young Caporta's book, Sand Talk, and how Aboriginal peoples of Australia, uh, the, the, the main body of land in Australia, uh, feel about that, I just had this feeling that that wasn't the case, and I was not disappointed. So I thought you'd I thought you'd like this. So I read an article about the Yupno people. Uh, this is in Northeast Papua New Guinea, and they 
look at time not as uh, forwards or backwards. So if you think about how in Western society we talk about time, we say uh, we're moving forward or, you know, uh, we're reaching back into the past. Well, this particular group of people conceives of time by the river that flows near their village. So they consider the source of the river, which is uphill, to be the future and sort of downhill as being the past. Okay? And then the geographical stuff doesn't stop there because when they're in their homes, the past is uh, wherever the door is. And then the future is sort of anywhere else. So in order to put their language into different tenses, it depends on where they're gesturing with relation to themselves. And it gets very tricky because that river that acts as everybody's understanding of how time works actually has a bend in it. So at a certain point, time kind of kinks up. And you would think that if you were up at that furthest most point where that river bends, it would be very hard to tell what is the past and what is the future. And I think that it's very important to sit with concepts like this. This isn't, you know, college dorm room, bong rip type of stuff. But I think that if you really sit with that idea of how time works for them geographically versus us in this linear, uh, almost mathematical formulation that we have it, in what ways would that shape the way you look at the rest of the world? What, how would that make you see reality itself? And I think that's when you start to to feel on a gut level that you're getting to something very cool. Right, right. Well, you know, to think of, of the river idea, I, I encourage people to investigate the Sepik River, which is one of the world's greatest rivers. Uh, it is a phenomenal meandering thing. Uh, it naturally looks like a snake from the air and it plumes out silt 60 miles into the Bismarck Sea. It is a hub, it's one of the great hubs of, of New Guinea culture and art. Uh, they have a great mask culture, but imagine, and it, it's worth listening to, to their music, giant slit gong drums that are carved like canoes, but to, make, to look like crocodiles because the crocodiles are everywhere. And the young men's initiation rites are to get uh, scars to make mm. their skin look like crocodiles. Mm. And to hear that drum sound on twilight and the fires are all burning and they, the, the, the people live in tree houses or still houses. Why? Because of the mosquitoes. Mm. It's one of the great malaria capitals of the world as I discover and still carry with me but to smell that smoke to try to keep the insect and to hear those drums it it's an entirely different sense of time you know it's a beautiful creation of an alternative version of time you know we think of uh you know whitman saying that the as yet unseen world which is too often i think our point of view in the way well, there are a lot of people living <laughs> with a very, very rich sense of magical and inhabited time and, and connection with spirits. 
they're not dispirited there. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're certainly really connected at home uh, with, with some serious environmental issues. Uh, we, we do need to at some point, probably just in our next episode, just recap how environmentally uh, challenged these areas have been, how their habitats are being destroyed because it's some of the greatest mineral and timber resources left. Uh, and there are great social problems. If we've kind of been talking a little bit idealistically about the people, that there, there are great social problems there. Port Moresby, the capital of Papua New Guinea, is one of the most dangerous cities in the world. So there are some things that, that are a problem. But speaking of that, that, you know, that river and time thing, one of the things that's still in my mind, it's just, it was so beautiful. There was a boy, he, he might have been 11, you know, not a junior high kid in American sense, you know, he was still an elementary school boy in that way, if he you know, went to mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm. And the Sepik River is daunting. Well, he headed across it in this dugout canoe in a perfect straight line mm. with the, you know, I mean, it's just, it was so beautiful. It was, an, you know, the geometry of that was just astonishing to me. And I see it in my mind's eye right now at home in the world, you know? Yeah, that's, that's perfect, I think. I do too. Well, thank you to people for listening. It, it is this part of the world. These cultures are some of the most uh, exciting things that have ever happened to me. Uh, they're the subject of, of, a, of a big work that I've been, you know, struggling with for, you know, many, many years. Uh, but I, I just find the magic that I found there so inspiring. And it, for a moment, for a moment, uh, I felt like I got a glimpse not just of myself in an individual psyche sense, but of the culture that I carry, the cargo that I carry, you know? And that's what we hope to get more access to, because if you don't know you're carrying something, how can you change it?